0: The law is the cornerstone, or one of the key cornerstones, of Western civilization. And we know that today, the law is being undermined, it's being changed in some ways. And some ways, we don't even quite recognize it, but today we will, with the help of our good friend, Professor Bruce Party,
1: A clear path forward requires looking back and learning. Good public policy requires human connection. It's a consideration of the facts, applying common sense, and innovation. It's urban. It's rural. It's real life. We all have something to contribute. We all have a responsibility to get informed because there's a little piece of Canada in all of us, isn't there? Let's learn on this path together. This is Leaders on the Frontier. Bruce,
0: I can think of no better person to talk to today as he is... uh able to talk about the law in 2023.
2: Thanks for having me, David. Always good to be with you.
0: Well, Bruce, it's great to have you here today. And uh, Bruce, uh, I know that you uh, heart from Queen's University, but you're also the executive director of Rights Probe. And uh, I want to ask you some really basic questions and then maybe go into more kind of specific questions that I think people will find very familiar as they look around Canada. Mm-hmm. And so I want to start off with a question around why is the law so important to a free and democratic society
2: great place to start the the so there's two if i can put it this way there are two competing visions about what the law is supposed to do and one is to have a a backup a a a safety net if you want when things go off the rails in other words you don't want violence in the streets you don't want neighbors beating each other up you don't you 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 want a peaceful society and you want a society in which property is respected in which contracts are performed and all those things but the law is there according to this vision to respond when things go wrong and only when things go wrong Mm -hmm. and otherwise the law is supposed to leave people alone
0: so is the word guardrails is that Guard some, a word a that good, comes to mind?
2: Guardrails is a good word. It's a guardrail to make sure that things don't go off the road. Yeah. The other vision is that the law should be a blueprint for the way society should be. It should be a blueprint in the sense that it's it's a it's a it's a plan for 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 guiding and manufacturing and engineering society the way you want it to be. And we have shifted, I think, in visions. It may have been at one time that the first was the prevailing vision, but now it is the second, no question about it, because we now live essentially in a managerial society. And in a managerial society, law is a tool. It's not a set of guardrails. It's a tool for, for government agencies and bureaucrats and officers to use to herd people to where the government wants them to go. Okay, so, so we are now living in the in the blueprint age of the law, I think. So I don't
0: I don't want to bury the headline here cuz it's it's kind of confusing to like I I've studied the law but I don't I'm I'm a lay person, you're the professor of law. You've you've really reflected on this a lot. It's almost like a lot of Canadians would be shocked to learn this that the law isn't quite the law that we thought it was, that it was kind of like the guardrails to civic society and We kind of do our thing in freedom, but you're saying it's something else. It's been kind of flipped on its head.
2: It has been flipped on its head and it's, it's been a very long time coming. I mean, this, this, this managerial revolution, James Burnham in 1941 wrote a book Mm -hmm. called the managerial revolution. And he was talking about this transformation from, from one thing to another. And, you know, people debate about when this actually happened. Some people date it long before that to the to the, uh, the New Deal after the Great Depression, or to World War I, or even to the previous century. But we think, a lot of us do anyway, think that we live in a, a capitalist market economy in which contracts are formed freely and that pe- pe- people basically own their own lives. And you know, there's still remnants of that around, but this managerial revolution has changed things over this long period of time, very, very slowly, but essentially we're in a situation now where we don't live under the rule of law. We live under a system of rule by law. And by that, I mean, we have authorities entrenched in the state who are making up the rules as they go day to day, situation to situation, on a a dime, and they're telling us what to do. And they regulate everything. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. And so, so mentally we're living, some of us in a different space than the one that actually exists.
0: Okay. So let's, let's think about that a little bit. Um, so in our lives, I'm comforted by the whole notion that the law is transparent and predictable and that I can understand it, but you're kind of getting into a different zone where if the managerial state is so huge and complex, and it's how do we even know that the law that law exists? Like we'll just keep bumping up against it. Is that what what's going on? Like that is exactly kind of funneled... what's going on.
2: So so wow. so Hayek said that one of the elements of the rule of law was rules fixed and announced beforehand.
1: This, yeah,
2: right. This this is your idea that mm-hmm. we we can know what the law is. We can go look it up. We can adjust our behavior accordingly, but that's not really how it works anymore right. because governments today aspire to be agile. They want to be able to respond to situations as quickly and efficiently as possible. And you could wow. see that during COVID, right? You got the public health yeah. official got behind the microphone on a Tuesday and said, you know, the, the rule today is going to be this, Okay. This this was simply a, a transparent example of what happens all the time now. You yeah. have groups of people with power in the back rooms deciding what the rule, what the guideline, what the order, what the directive is going to be today. Wow. And it's very difficult to know exactly what it's going to be ahead of time.
0: Wow. Well, on that note, you've just hit us over the head, or at least myself, in terms of that kind of reality. And I, you know, I've I've observed this as well and analyzed it, but... You know, I used to be a mayor, I was an elected official, and and we took the law very seriously. We would would publicize it, uh, we would have uh, town hall meetings, we'd have discussions, we'd come together and there would be discussions, debates, pros and cons. We'd look at the options with so many fine people. And it was really a very positive, um, dare I say, experience in democracy. And you could say when we adopted that law, we did a good process. But what you're saying is something different. It's like, how could anyone, uh, any citizen, keep up with their, quote, rights and responsibilities to monitor every single law and regulations that's being passed on them? Is that kind of the the contrast that's going on?
2: Well, yes, yes, but I'm not suggesting that there's there's no longer a process. I mean, there still is process. Yeah. There, there, there are still, so let's put it this way, the people who are making all these rules are still acting lawfully I mean they have authorization largely in statutes that say you know the, that the minister will have the power to do these things or the agency will have the power to uh-huh. do this thing or the tribunal will have the power to decide these things so there's no suggestion here that this is unlawful okay this is and in fact this is the problem this is what has become lawful this is the this is the premise upon which Our legal system now works. It's not the rule of law. It is the authorization to the administrative state to take on these problems. The people, I think, a lot of people believe that an administrative state has become necessary. Because, after all, modern life is complex. Mm -hmm. In order to keep us all safe, we need an expert bureaucracy to guide us along the way. Okay. That premise is, among other things, the, the justification, the legitimization of the system that we now have. And that has taken us away from the guardrail idea to the idea of law being a, a blueprint, and a blueprint that, you know, that they're still working on, and it, and it changes every day.
0: Okay, so, but you're giving us really, I think, reality therapy about what's going on around us, so... We've got to open our eyes up and say, wow, gosh, how do we cope with such a large state that is so complex? And it's been delegated all this authority to make all these rules, and all of a sudden we're in a thicket of rules, and we don't even know it. Um, Right.
2: Right. Exactly so. Exactly so. Exactly so. And so let's just go back a step. So we've made reference to this idea of the rule of law. And you know, legal philosophers would say that the rule of law is complicated, Mm and You know i understand what they're talking about but we can make it simple by comparing it to its opposite to the rule of persons which is what the whole idea in the first place right you had the king and the king was a tyrant and his word was the law and you were we had centuries of reform trying to get out from under the thumb of the king and one of the things that that we adopted was this idea of the rule of law and one of the elements of the rule of law is separating powers between Pieces of the state you know we divided our state into three bits the legislature we know what that is it's people who are elected and sit in the in the house and the executive branch executive branch are the people who put those laws into effect and the courts we know what a court is they apply those rules to the cases that come before them and if you keep those functions separate that provides us with liberty because none of the individual people in any of those three branches can alone decide what's going to happen. Mm-hmm. Because when the legislature passes the rules, they don't know the future cases that are going to come up. And when the executive enforces the rules, the rules are already made. So if they can't make them up, they have to do what they've been told. And the courts can't make it up because they have the rules given by the legislature. Right. So everybody, everybody's hands are tied. And so that's Bruce, the idea.
0: I, I love this. Um, I, w- I went to Runnymede. That beautiful green meadow just outside of Heathrow right, Airport, right? Right. Where? Uh, what? What did they sign again? Oh, yes, the Magna Carta. Magna Carta, yes. Right. So that was our first, if you will, blueprint for how our society was going to work. The way you talked about it, Bruce, and it's it a, was, it's a it marvelous was inheritance, yes. right?
2: Right. Right. Incredible. Now, it, it was just the beginning. It wasn't a. It wasn't a, a finished thing. I mean, after all, the the rights that the Magna Carta was imagining were going to be given just to an elite group. Yeah, but an elite group that opposed the king, nevertheless. And it was, it was a very important mm-hmm. step along the way to where we eventually right. got to, for sure.
0: And, and to be clear, the reason why they met at Runnymede, that meadow, outside of Heathrow Airport so many hundreds of years ago, was because they had a really terrible king. I, I remember right. John, John I. Right horrible king. And uh, they said, no more. Right, And so they they literally uh, took him by the collar and said, you're going to sign this, among so many others. It was really quite a remarkable moment. And there's these ebbs and flows, right, of power, the, the, the elite that rule and those are the people. So golly, it sounds like we're kind of repeating
2: history a little bit, right, where there's
0: a lot of power vested in the people who
2: rule us. Well, you see, I've come to the conclusion that that we made a mistake along the way i mean magna carta was a very important step but the mistake that we made for my money is that over this long course of history in terms of making all these reforms the mistake was we didn't go far enough and what we've been doing ever since then is moving power around we took power from the king we gave it to the legislature (laughs) But legislatures can be tyrants, too. You know, when when legislatures have supremacy in the sense that they can make any rules that they want to, which is really the the foundation of British constitutional democracy. Then you're subject to the whims of the legislature now and not the king. So the Americans and then Canadians, among other people, did something else, which was to insert individual constitutional rights. Now, what did that do? Well, that moved power from the legislature to the courts. But note what we're doing. We're just moving power around. We're not getting rid of it. Mm -hmm. And so, in in total, the state, whether it's the king or the legislature or the courts, they still have the power and authority to rule over you and tell you what you're going to do. Wow.
0: So it sounds like whack-a-mole, Bruce. Um, We have this constant ebb and flow of power and how do we intelligently renew our society given these realities where the state is so huge it's into every walk of life and there's almost a perverse incentive to keep growing it because politicians want to keep saying yes to people's special interest
2: groups right and they want absolutely and they want to show the population that they are responding quickly and efficiently to problems as they arise i mean people think that government is for solving societal problems and that's a problem that that idea is a problem if you believe in that idea then you believe in the necessity for an expansive administrative state and this is what we've got okay so 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 some of
0: the citizens then are in fact the problem because we've become not adults high-functioning adults who want to live their lives and make you know reasonable intelligent choices but it's almost like we're becoming children in some way who want to be looked after by a a nanny state. Is that kind of yep, the other it dynamic? Is, it is
2: the nanny state, and and the and the confidence in the nanny state. Now, of course, people will get upset with various things that the nanny yeah. state does. I mean, they might think that this tax is too high, or they don't like this regulation, or you know, they're interfering in this. And mm-hmm. and of course, so be it. But the real question is. Do you embrace the idea of having such a such a machine who is looking out for you and looking over you and supervising you and regulating everything that you do? And if you believe in that, well, then the effectiveness of complaining about, you know, this particular rule or this particular tax is really not that effective. I think that in order to to confront the place that we are, we have to confront this idea, which is, are you sure? that you really need this kind of government in your face all the time. Wow. So, Bruce, this
0: is a very powerful conversation because basically you've said a lot of our history is at stake here in terms of our, not just the law as we've traditionally known it, the rule of law, that it's transparent and it's clear, it's democratic, but that our larger democratic society as we know it is really kind of in jeopardy i I don't mean to sound overly dramatic but that's basically what you're saying bruce well this this is this
2: is the premise of managerialism right yeah managerialism is just control and and if you if you accept the legitimacy of the idea that experts should have control in accordance with their beliefs about what ought to be done then then let's just call a spade a spade that's not a free society exactly managed it's a managed society and note how much the managers and when i say managers just to be clear when i say managers i don't mean like a middle level manager like a bank manager Mm -hmm. i'm not talking about a middle a middle level administrator with you know bosses above and clerks below i'm talking about the people who run society who engineer society the ones who make policy the ones who spend public money, the ones who make legal decisions in courts, the ones who, who decide how we're all going to be.
0: Yeah, the, is, so-called, is, the so-called, as my friend Dr. Eamon Butler says, the good and the
2: great. The good and the great, the <laughs> professional managerial <That's> right. class. <laughs> yeah. And okay. these people, these people hate the rule of law. Okay. Now, they wouldn't say it that way. If you ask anybody in the legal realm, everybody is going to agree the rule of law is very important. But they mean different things. And what I mean by the rule of law is the system that prevents the management that's actually happening. And managers hate that rule of law because it it gets in the way, right? If you have separation of powers, Mm -hmm. you know, if legislatures have to do this, an executive, and by the way, the executive, just for so people can think about this clearly, the executive branch of government or the administrative state, if you want, is every bit of government that is not a legislature or a court. I mean, you know what a legislature is, you know what a court is, everything else is executive branch, you know, ministries and ministers and agencies and tribunals and, and law enforcement and Bank of Canada and, and, and administrations of all kinds. They're all executive branch, right? Now, if the executive branch is limited to simply executing the rules in statutes, That's terribly inconvenient because Uh it means you can't be agile. You can't respond. You just have, you have your hands tied. Managers hate that. And here's the thing that they miss. The rule of law is not just an inconvenience. That's the whole point. The point of the rule of law is to prevent them from taking things into their own hands, which is exactly why they don't like it.
0: Yeah. Okay. So I want to, um, Kind of take our conversation um and kind of ground it in some examples, because okay. i I know Bruce, you know this stuff so well, uh, and I really like the way you think. So if you think foundationally, though, where do our rights come from? They don't come from the state. they come from we would say if if you're a person of faith, a divine, we were born free
2: <laughs> to coin that phrase, right? Sure. Sure. There's a danger though here. And the and the danger is in the in in identifying the kinds of claims that we're actually making. Mm-hmm. And so uh you're referring to the natural rights tradition, the idea Correct. that you were born with certain inherent rights and it's not the government's right to give them to you or take them yeah. away. We we don't part- get
0: our rights from the king, the prime minister, the premier, the mayor, period.
2: Right, right. So the 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 tricky part though is this. So we have to be clear about whether we're making a a, a moral or philosophical claim or an actual legal claim. Uh, and so those people who make this claim philosophically, I c- quite agree with. I mean, this is this is this is really an inherent part of being alive, uh, b- being a human mm-hmm. being. But legally, that statement is actually not often true because in fact the courts do can and do decide whether or not you have a particular right on a particular occasion so there's a there's a saying in the law that there's no right without a remedy okay and and what they mean is you go to a court and you plead your case and you say i have a right the right's been violated and the court will say either yes that's true here's your remedy or they'll say no i'm sorry no no remedy for you and the, the, it's a truism if you go to the court and they do not give you a remedy then that means you did not have the right that you claimed you just okay. do not have it in the law doesn't mean you have it don't have it philosophically or morally but in the law which is in the court which is where the law happens the 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 the, the court has said that the law does not recognize the right that you have claimed
0: okay so i i take your point at the same time if we we step back from a a larger perspective yeah from a common sense point of view bruce is it fair to say though that we inherently as human beings made in the image of the divine um we we have rights we were born with those rights we don't seek those rights from um the elected official um, who can cavalierly cast us aside like some serf or some slave, right? So well, again,
2: again, the problem is I agree with you morally and philosophically, but in but legally, sometimes they can and do, mm-hmm. and we can we can say that that person is acting wrongly, okay? Yes. But that person may actually be acting legally. I mean, okay. after all, like for example, the Third Reich acted lawfully i mean the constitution was changed yes. and then laws were yeah. made and they were acting lawfully they were obviously acting terribly but they were acting lawfully in accordance with the strict sort of functional uh definitions that we would use to evaluate what the yeah. what the law contains so right. let me put this another way i would i would frame it a little differently and so part of the conceptions that we now have in our heads about what rights we naturally have is influenced by the way they've been framed in the law. So we mm-hmm. think, well, we have freedom of speech. We have freedom of conscience. We have freedom of association and so on. And these are inherent things. I would put it differently. I would say that freedom is actually just one thing. It is one thing. You are, you are a free individual. And I'm talking philosophically now. And yeah, you can you can sort of split this singular idea up into little bits, call this one free speech, and this mm-hmm. one freedom of conscience and this one freedom of society. But it's still all the same thing. It's 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 freedom. And so if you if you really want to consider what an actually free society might look like, instead of embracing the way our individual rights work right now, and here's the way they work you think of the charter rights here's what charter rights do and unlike what a lot of people think the foundation of our legal system is not the charter it is instead the idea of legislative supremacy that's the first idea (laughs) the legislature can do anything it wants unless 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 what well unless you violate one of these rights and who decides when that happens? Well, the court. Okay, so the default position is the government can do anything, except. So I'm going to suggest you turn that around. You change the default. Governments can do nothing. Except. So, what's the except? You know what can governments do? I'm describing a a, a regime in which governments essentially. Don't really have power, except and you have to de- decide what the acceptance. And here's my accept: governments can do nothing. Governments cannot subject citizens to laws that determine their behavior unless those citizens assent to being subject to those laws. And I don't mean collectively, mm-hmm. I mean individually. Every single person has the right to assent to laws that govern their conduct and if they do not assent then the only law they're subject to is you can't use force against your fellow man but this but this turns the whole thing on its head and this is not the system that we have right now
0: well i want to go through a little bit of those examples bruce because i i think that what you're onto something as we think about how dare i say individual rights and freedom are kind of passing before our eyes, and they have been for years. And so it behooves us to open our eyes and see what's going on uh, before it's frankly too late.
2: Oh, I totally Uh, agree.
0: And so in this context, let's talk a little bit about um, the threats to freedom and good law. And one of them begins with, and and you've cited this in uh, previous analyses that you've done, is the influence of, frankly, an alien ideology that is so predominant in so many institutions, uh, particularly universities. Uh, I think of the social sciences. I cannot find hardly any departments in Canadian universities today. And I I trust, I I confess I've not done a full audit, but I, I know enough of these universities, I've seen them, where so many of the faculty are Self-described Marxists, and I think many people, Canadians, would be shocked to hear that. But that's what they are. Am I um, am I overstating this, Bruce?
2: I don't think so. I mean that there there are lo- listen at our Canadian universities, there's there are there are lots of different people with a variety of perspectives. Indeed. So it is not it is not the case that everybody in the university is a Marxist, but. There is variety within a very narrow range. Right. Right. There, you know, there's some of everything, but most people are within a very narrow range. And that narrow range includes embracing the kind of philosophy that you are referring to, which is the combination of critical theory and social justice and critical race theory and postmodernism and so on. It is not the only one, but it has become the, the dominant... Ideology at very many universities. Totally
0: agree. Yes. So within that context, our foundational understanding of society is being driven by those parties in many ways as they educate people in traditions and then they go into the world and they make the assumption that everything is not through, um, uh, individual rights and freedoms—it's all based on the assumption that someone's oppressing another. I, am, I, am I simplifying it too much, Bruce? Uh,
2: well, no. I think that's where you have to start with it. That—that—that that, that is the basis of social justice ideology. That the—that—that that, so one of the premises of these doctrines, these academic doctrines, is that the West is fundamentally oppressive. Indeed, yeah. It, it is based upon power relationships. It's basically an anti-Western ideology mm-hmm. and you know and people have debate about you know how and where it began you know what it meant at the beginning uh some people portray it as a set of uh beginning with a set of scholars who were trying to figure out this is how it began in germany with the frankfurt school trying to figure out why marxism had not caught on in the west and they weren't mm-hmm. they wouldn't have called themselves marxists they they did certain pieces of the marxist doctrine but nevertheless some of it was left and you it, it it morphed over time took over the universities in north america and so on and you you were left with this essentially anti-western anti-enlightenment set of ideas uh the the uh the rejection of 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 reason and and so mm-hmm. on and the insistence that power is the only thing in relationships between people and that identity was the primary determinant of how you got on in your life and all these all these other things. Um, that is now escaped from the universities because so many generations of students have basically gone through the institutions and absorbed it and are now running our other institutions, our, our, our public institutions and governments and, and so on are being run by people who have been indoctrinated in these ideas and they believe in them. Like not everybody, not everybody for sure, but <laughs> enough of them so that it has become Basically a, a a wave But there's another aspect to this as well, and this relates the the critical theory bit to the managerial bit mm-hmm. right So one might ask this question, well, what's the relationship between this managerial revolution that I referred to at the beginning and this 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 wave of critical theory and social justice? Well, one of the explanations is this: critical theory and social justice has been embraced by the managerial state because it requires management i mean if your thesis is that it is the job of government to uh, to to rescue all the oppressed and to readjust out, uh, outcomes between groups and so on and so forth to flip the social justice pyramid
0: mm-hmm.
2: that requires an infinite amount of
0: management exactly so they want the managers in a in a state want a bigger state
2: Yes. And this is the ideology that advocates for the state to run everything. That's exactly right, and, and you can you can make the same analysis for other things as well. You have critical theory and social justice, but you also have the COVID experience. Yes, right. You also have climate change. You have you have transgenderism. I mean, all these things are management intense, and it is it is not a surprise mm-hmm. that a government hell bent upon managing you is going to embrace all those things that require it to expand its reach.
0: Because that's the rationale, the pretext to say, well, of course we need to run everything because there's a existential climate change risk and the world's going to end as Greta Thunberg predicted sure. seven years ago. That's right. Exactly. Right? Yes. And Al Gore and all the rest. Right. So, yeah, some of the stuff is kind of confusing and, and it, it it's a bit of a head scratcher because for a lot of Canadians, we kind of believe in... Dare I say common sense, the idea that there is truth, that there is evidence. But that's not what these people think exactly. They're not into that. That's not their worldview and I don't mean to demonize anyone, but it's it's a it's a very uh, bizarre uh, perspective where um, there is not clear rules of evidence. And in fact, when we look at skyrocketing crime today, when we see so many uh, parties that are undertaking serious crimes Mm -hmm. and it's like a turnstile, like the numbers are, are are profoundly higher than they were just 10 years ago. That's a symptom, Bruce, of something deeper of what's of, of this. Is that, is that right?
2: Well, well, yes. And, and for an example of the incoherence that you're alluding to, you can look to the, uh, the, the what has been the liberal agenda with respect to guns, mm-hmm. just right. just for one example. Yes, right. So they were doing two things simultaneously. On the one hand, they were they were um, increasing the culpability of people who. Legally owned guns. They were trying to take the guns away, mm-hmm. trying to criminalize those people who still had them and so on. At the same time, they were eliminating or reducing minimum sentences for gun crimes. Right? So, I mean, if you put those two things together, they don't make sense. No, not right? at all. They, 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 and, and that incoherence is part of the characteristic of this kind of thinking. Mm -hmm. And the the rationale goes like this. Well, the people who are committing the gun crimes are the oppressed themselves. And therefore, they deserve to be rescued. And those people who own the guns, you know, in the country for hunting and so on, well, they're a member of a class that is privileged. And since our objective is to flip this this social injustice pyramid, Mm -hmm. we have to punish those people who are in that class. And we have to. To rescue the people who are at the bottom, who are committing the crimes, okay, and therefore, we have to do this and that. So,
0: so just to clarify, so in that perspective, if you're a criminal and you undertake a crime, I'm you're actually a victim because, well, you know, maybe you had a bad childhood
2: or something like this, and that, that as a that's result, you're thing. undertaking this crime. Is that it? That that's it, that's it. Yep. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying, for example, that all the courts will see. It in quite that way every single time. Sure. Yeah. But the premise, but the premise of the legislative reforms that, in my opinion, that the liberals were, were, uh, had adopted reflect those two ideas. Exactly. Yes.
0: Now, just putting aside some of those realities of kind of the ideological drivers, um, ways of thinking behind the law and our freedom, um, I think what you also alluded to well, Bruce, is just the, the basic reality that if a state gets so big with so much power, and I think, um, uh, you know, we're, we're both, uh, we both admire, uh, thinkers like, uh, Donald Savoy, and who've written extensively about how a lot of Canadian institutions have become, dare I say, weak and, and, uh, too concentrated in power, particularly at the executive level, like the prime minister's office or premiers. Mm-hmm. If you look at the, if it, if you look at it through that kind of practical lens, Isn't there a lot of stuff that's going on within decision-making and policy in Canada that's really driven not even by policy, but it's really just by sheer political games and power? I mean, just like short-term polls. I mean, I think of the mandate on the the truckers, for example. Yes. To this day, we don't have a shred of evidence showing there is any medical reason or problem to impose this mandate on this particularly tiny little group that hang out in uh, what is it again oh yeah they're trucks and <laughs> right. you know there was really no problem right and yet they chose to like it, it's almost unnerving they went after these people, these hardworking yes. people that were just the previous year being celebrated for delivering all kinds of things as heroes during the quote pandemic and then all of a sudden they went after them like a bully yeah. yes. like a bully yes
2: yes, right? yes. so yes, absolutely but but there's a tangled web here yeah right so we make the accusation i think quite rightly that a lot of these measures were politically driven Mm. Mm -hmm. and that's a that's a bad bad thing on the other hand the opposite or an alternative anyway is to say that the politicians shouldn't be interfering in this and that if that's the case then who is left Uh and that would leave the bureaucrats you know the public health officials and the health canada people and and that's not a good idea either because now we're empowering the deep state we're saying politicians even though you are the ones that have been elected for some reason we don't want you interfering we want these people over here who haven't even been elected they're sucked away in their offices and in in their in their positions and we should give them the absolute authority to decide what to do that's not a good idea either and then and this is is sort of what i mean meant before by moving power around not not getting rid of it just moving it around from politicians to bureaucrats and then to say well how about the courts the courts will protect us well during COVID, they did not right so we still have this problem of trying to decide who in this system is supposed to be able to make these kinds of calls that okay. take away our civil liberties yeah. in the name of a virus that really wasn't that it wasn't that dangerous? And well, the, for me, the question is not who of all these people should have it, but whether or not anybody should have it at all.
0: Well, it it is so it is a bit confusing, but you you ask a very blunt question, Bruce, because um, certainly in my experience with emergencies it was always the elected official that had to as harry truman said the buck stopped here
2: right but right. there was at least, a plan at least you could blame them at yes, least you could blame them that's
0: right but there was a plan and that had been um, discussed publicly it wasn't a secret or anything like that right and and yes all plans can't you know plan for everything but by and large there were really good plans put together including for pandemics I can hear um my colleague uh, Colonel uh, David Redmond uh piping up here saying we did the plan. Right. But we didn't follow the plan. And I think in some ways it was a cynical attempt by the the politicians and they're they're trying to survive in their offices and everyone is frightened out of their minds because there is such a a wave and message of fear. Yes, that people and, and hid I... behind a medical officer of health in the good name of the doctor to yes. be able to somehow manage through this when in fact you know if if there would have been a more transparent approach of discussing what what was really going on in terms of real mortality rates of being fairly modest a concern, but we could protect the vulnerable, but we weren't and, going to shut down society and hurt the children and and take a like that kind of approach, I think people would have respected that,
2: oh, I think so too, and I think they would have preferred it if it had actually mm-hmm. rolled out that way and I take. David's point, David Rodin's point about the, the plan that had already been put into place and then was thrown out for political expediency. I mean, all those mm-hmm. things were bad things. But I but for my money, I also have difficulty with the idea of having a plan. I mean, mm. this is gonna this is gonna sound like heresy. If you if you make a stand against the administrative state, you are a heretic. In today's age, you're a heretic. And I'm being a heretic. I don't like the idea of the administrative state. Putting plans in place, even if the plan is a good one, the idea that those officials should have the ability to decide whether and under what circumstances I'm not going to be allowed to leave my home. Yeah, right. I think that by definition, that's a bad plan.
0: Yeah, and and I would say that um, no plan would have recommended that. I think actually lockdowns were considered, but they were dismissed fairly out hand because it had way too many damage to society. It was
2: it was silly. Right, wow. but but there's still but there's still a point here, though. So and I, and I accept that for sure. I mean, that ought to have been the conclusion that locking people down, you know, would not produce good outcomes. But here's my objection: if the data had shown otherwise, if the data had shown, and and I mean, really shown, not mm-hmm. not the fake stuff that they used, but if the data had really shown that this might have worked.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: My case is, I'm sorry, it's still wrong. You still can't do that to me. Yes. I refuse to stay in my, to be blocked away in my house, Mm -hmm. even if you think it will work. Mm -hmm. Because that's not the role you're supposed to have.
0: Yeah. No, and I I think that's a a very important question. Um, Can you really justify any of that? Right. So you mentioned that the... um, the judges uh, were kind of missing an action. Uh, it seems like there is some activity coming on uh, onto the scene in, in Canada as we look at different actions, particularly on the um, civil liability side now. Are you right. hopeful that that will happen over time, that um, as people table their vaccine injuries, uh, when uh, it's clear that the, uh, the vaccines were largely ineffective, they were not, quote, safe or effective, um right. i mean they didn't stop transmission um
2: no. it, it, and, so... and, and never and and this is the irony right they never really claimed to not if you actually read the 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 background documents mm-hmm. that uh that were involved in the trials i i i if you if you scrape away all of the rhetoric and all of the posturing mm-hmm. it it seemed apparent from the beginning that they weren't designed to Prevent transmission.
0: Well, and they didn't go through a a, a typical um, uh, vaccine approval process. It went through in the United States in a in a military workaround process. It was, and that's probably right. something that almost no one knows about.
2: Right, uh, right, right, right. Exactly. You know. Exactly. And and again,
0: it gets to this quandary where if you don't know it, then how do you even know how to make an intelligent decision? Right. And so this yeah. is where the state is truly so large and complex and far reaching yes we have to ask ourselves some really smart questions bruce about how do we turn the tide how do we bring common sense back to public policy but also freedom to people
2: the the kind of action that you refer to i hope will be successful as time goes on i mean it's 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 the kind so as as you know, there are, were many attempts of various kinds to push back against these COVID measures in the courtroom, and most of them failed. But the kind of action you're talking about is, is different in that you're talking about a person who has actually suffered physical harm from the vaccine and may have done so in a context where they may not have been given enough information to have been given informed consent mm-hmm, indeed. right and so this this is if I can if I can put it this way it's a novel circumstance but it's a very normal kind of action for damages in negligence mm-hmm. and so only time will tell whether or not these will be successful but I, I I certainly hope that those people who have been adversely affected by the vaccine will consider if the circumstances are correct. To to consider this kind of a of an of a proceeding,
0: so but the 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 whole advice is that um, time will tell as more and more information does become public sooner or later uh, that there are significant problems around um, uh, the management of COVID nineteen. We also find that um, citizens can do other things. They can make choices in terms of speaking up with their elected officials. They can are there other things that that citizens can do
2: well one of the things about the administrative states that we have now is it's so big that it requires people doing all kinds of things everywhere and therefore there are a lot of positions to fill even positions that can be filled by people who are not careerists Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. in this sense so for example i mean there are lots of seats on school boards that need to be filled. And people are now turning their attention to the things that they might be able to do in the electoral sense. I mean, can I run for a seat in the school board? Or can I run for city council? Or like you did, to run for mayor. I mean, it'd be great to have some people on municipal councils who who thought this way instead of the other way. And if you get a critical mass of those people, then who knows? I mean, maybe things will start to turn. Absolutely.
0: No, I, I think that's a great challenge, Bruce. And- it's really at the local level. And in fact, wise government uh, at Frontier, we always say the principle of subsidiarity is important. Right, right, where you right, right. Push yeah. um, responsibilities to the lowest level possible. And and that's why in many respects, local government is the most important lo- uh, level of, of government. But your challenge that people get involved is very apropos, Bruce. So um, I just want to thank you for joining us, Bruce, for uh, join uh, this discussion today, we've uh, covered a lot of ground, not only about the law, but really, uh, you've given us reality therapy about 2023. So thank you so much for joining us. We really do appreciate it.
2: Always a pleasure, David. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you.
1: Thank you for watching Leaders on the Frontier. We're a nonpartisan think tank. We explore ideas, policy, and practical solutions that can make a difference in the lives of Canadians. We do not accept any government funding. We work for you. Thank you for supporting Frontier. Visit fcpp.org to give. While you're there, be sure to check out our latest articles and research. Without open discussion and debate, you're not thinking, nor are you free. Comment below. We'd love for you to join the conversation.